We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, March 11, 2021, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is great to have you with us. The weather finally warming up here in the D.C. area. Mark, I know we're not in West Palm Beach, Florida, but maybe it's starting to feel a little bit like West Palm Beach, Florida here in the DMV. I think we actually hit the same temperature as West Palm today. I think we got to 72 here, and it might have been identical to down there. No palm trees. But I'll take the sunshine, the warm weather, at least maybe start to feel like it may be baseball season soon. If it continues to be warm, will you bring camels to one of our tapings here? Uh, if I can find them, yeah. I, but I, you know what? I think, I think we've already gotten over the hump. I don't think we need to prove ourselves. <laughs> I think already four episodes in, we have proven that we have gotten over the hump and we are here to stay. I like it, man. Well, it's good to be back with you guys once again. Twice per week are we coming to you with the Nats Chat Podcast. And then once the regular season gets going, remember, post-game pods after every Nationals game, morning after each Nats game, we are with you talking about all that transpired. Lots to get into on this installment of Nats Chat. Some very good news over the last few days when it comes to the Nats rotation in terms of how guys are looking and how guys are doing. So we want to get into all that. What about the Juan Soto, Trey Turner contract extension scenarios? Mike Rizzo addressing those situations on Monday. How realistic truly is an extension for Juan Soto off the Fernando Tatis news of a few weeks back? And of course, of more urgency is the Trey Turner situation with him set to be a free agent uh, after next season, not this coming season. Uh, You can hit us up on Twitter, of course, at Nats underscore chat. We continue to get so many great tweets from you guys. Continue to get so many great emails from you guys as well. Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can also hit up the mastermind of this operation, Tim Shovers, for advertising inquiries. Again, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. And, you know, Mark, in our last episode, we asked for listeners to show us where they are listening from off the great tweet we got from our guy Tom from Chiba, Japan. We got an email from Sydney, Australia, our guy Glenn. This is spectacular. He says, hey, Alan, Mark, just listen to your latest pod, and you have at least one listener in Oz. Love the new Nat-specific pod. A great step up on what has been available previously. You want some photos? How's the one below looking down the coast at a couple of Sydney beaches? So, Mark, we got representation down under for this podcast. We are all over, as I said. My goal is that we hit every country in the world before this is over. We're going to crack North Korea. <laughs> if we can get a listener in North Korea, then we have really accomplished something 
that's on my to-do list before we're all said and done with this thing this season. You think we can get Kim Jong as a listener to this podcast? Big baseball fan. Okay. <laughs> we know he's a basketball fan. He likes Dennis Rodman. That we've come to know uh, <laughs> over the years here. So keep that stuff coming, man. We love it. Uh, it's been great to get some of this from you guys uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, Nationals fans are all over. We know that, and we are certainly uh, finding that out more and more uh, as we interact with you guys. So let's get into the news here, Mark. I know you've been all over it on MassInSports.com and you know, kind of a lot of ways we could start. But how about we start with what happened on Wednesday, and that is Max Scherzer once again looking terrific for the Nationals in a Grapefruit League outing. So he faced nine batters of the Cardinals, and these are not just any batters. This was a, a fairly representative Cardinals lineup that included Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, perhaps you've heard of them, and retired all nine and struck out five of them and did it all on 42 pitches, 33 strikes over the course of three innings. Now, I know we're not supposed to read too much into spring training stats, get too excited about spring training numbers, but that's about as good as it gets. I don't care what day it is, whether it's March 10th or October 10th, you're going out there against a real lineup and doing that. Uh, that tells me that Max Scherzer is ready to go. He, by all accounts, had some intensity. Davey even said he could hear him grunt a few times at the end all of right. pitches. That's always a good sign that Max is getting into a regular season form. So, you know, he's still got, what, I think at least three more to go before the season begins. But that's a big step forward. And that also tells me, like we said last time, the first outing was just about making sure the ankle was fine, making sure the mechanics were fine, no issues there. And he said... You know, I'll start to dial up the intensity after this one. Well, I think he did that on Wednesday because that was as good as it gets. So is it fair to say that we are beyond the left ankle sprain? Davey Martinez revealing a few weeks ago Max suffered this sprain left ankle while conditioning about two weeks prior to the start of camp. You know, he's two for two Maxes in terms of looking good, doing well in these Grapefruit League outings. Can we bury the left ankle conversation or not quite yet? I think so. I mean, he pretty much buried it after that first start. And and certainly today, there's no reason to think that he was even thinking about it. So yeah, I'm going to say we're going to bury it and hopefully we never have to mention it again. Very good. All right. Maybe even more significant is what happened on Tuesday night, a four-all tie for the Nats with the Houston Astros. Steven Strasburg finally makes his 2021 Grapefruit League debut and looks really good. One and two-thirds scoreless innings, four strikeouts versus no hits, one walk. I know there were some nits to pick. Pitch count went up. He spiked some change-ups. But three of the four strikeouts, strikeouts looking. Uh, some of the strikeout victims, Carlos Correa, Yuli Gurriel, had good velocity. It seemed like the Strasburg start went about as well as you could have reasonably hoped for. Yeah, and uh, again, and, th- and this was a more serious thing. Obviously, he's coming back from the carpal tunnel surgery last summer. You think about the last time we actually saw him on a mound in a game. August 14th, last summer at Camden Yards, he made it three batters in before we saw that familiar slump of the shoulders, shaking of the arm as he trudged off the mound with yet another injury. And we didn't know at the time how serious it was. It turns out that's the last time that he pitched in 2020. He only made two starts last year, but he has maintained since we finally heard from him this spring that the surgery was simple, 15 minutes, that he felt an immediate difference, that he had a normal off season. And the best thing you can say about him right now is that things are completely normal for him this spring. That says to me that he is fine. He's not thinking about the injury. He is building himself up. Now, he admits that this isn't the first time he's had to go come back from an injury, and it's not the first time he's come to spring training after uh, dealing with something in the past. 
And really, he's never had any issues in spring. That's never been a problem for him. He acknowledges that the injury issues he has are usually down the road, and it's about once he's pitching every fifth day and wear and tear and things like that. So he knows that, and he knows that that's the key to his season, is staying out there uh, and taking the ball every fifth day. But for right now, everything seems perfect, and it doesn't appear that this is anything they need to worry about anymore. Yeah, I know when Strasburg revealed to you guys a few weeks ago that his symptoms with this carpal tunnel neuritis had included numbness in the right hand, you know, numbness in the pitching hand. I was like, whoa, because I don't know that we knew that. I was like, that seems pretty serious and that doesn't seem good. But he did say that the numbness went away essentially right after the surgery he underwent last August. And as you've said, and I know has he has talked about it does seem like he's doing quite well and that, you know, this isn't something that's lingering or anything like that. Like, of course, with Strasburg, you do have to worry about, well, what else might pop up over the course of a season. But certainly seems like he's in good standing right now coming off that surgery and coming off, like you referenced, it really a lost year last year. I mean, he made two starts the entire year. He totaled five innings for the entire season. I mean, even with the shortened season, it was like you got nothing from your big money pitcher who you had just resigned the previous offseason. So good news with Max. Good news with Strassi. Good news with John Lester. He spoke to you guys on Wednesday, gave us some detail on what he went through with this thyroid surgery situation. And it does seem like this was not related to the cancer that he went through more than a decade ago. And it does seem like he's doing pretty well. It's a starting rotation injury update week, I think. It really is. <laughs> Thankfully, nothing's going on with Corbin or Ross that we know of. So we'll just stick to the three, uh, the three other veterans. But yeah, so look, you know, we had bits and pieces of this over the last week as we learned about this. But this is the first time we've heard from Lester himself, and that was important because he was really able to share the details now of what he was feeling, when he was feeling it, how it all came about. I encourage anyone out there to read the full article that I wrote on MassInSports.com because it's interesting, some of the stuff that he's talking about. But basically, he knew something wasn't quite right going back to last year with the Cubs. This last year was pretty tough for me as far as just energy level the desire to work out. I love working out and, and it was hard for me just to, to do stuff that I wanted to do. He could tell that he just didn't have the same energy that he has had throughout his career. He was feeling fatigued a lot sooner. Sometimes, you know, by the fifth or the sixth inning of a game, he, he felt like he had nothing left. But even on a few occasions, he said he would come out of the bullpen to start a game and he'd feel like he'd already made his start, that he felt that tired already. And in his mind, he's thinking, okay, I'm 36 years old. Maybe it's just, this is what happens as you get older. Maybe I need to work out more. Maybe I need to change my regimen. And he went and talked to some other veteran pitchers and they all said, no, that, that didn't happen to me. Something sounded different about this. So talked to doctors. He had some tests done. He gets regular blood work done uh, because of his cancer history. And finally, they did find that there was a problem with what turns out is the parathyroid. I know we've been talking about the thyroid, and that's what the Nationals had told us up to this point. The thyroid is the big gland in your neck, the butterfly-shaped gland. You also have four parathyroids. I'm learning so much here. Just a little aside here, I, I long ago realized that to be an effective sports writer, you have to now know about medicine, the law, finances, economics, labor. I mean, you name it, you have to know all this stuff to be a sports writer nowadays. Well, especially with the Nationals, when it comes to writing injury stories with the Nats, you better know the anatomy backwards and forwards because you know what you're initially told quite often isn't what ends up being the case. Like Davey did say he's having thyroid surgery, and it turns out, well, it wasn't exactly that. I mean, it's not a huge deal that this wasn't described properly, but it wasn't labeled properly initially. 
And, you know, to get a little behind the scenes here, I think a lot of us on the beat would have preferred if somebody with the Nationals had helped us out a little bit there. We just want to put accurate information out. And and it's not necessarily fair to Davey Martinez, who's not a doctor, <laughs> to be the one to have to reveal all this stuff. So anyways, the parathyroid, there's four of them. They're much smaller. One of them was uh, causing problems. It basically creates too much calcium in your blood levels, and that can lead to fatigue, among other things. So he finally figured out this needed to be done. He went to New York. He got it done, got it taken out of a fairly simple procedure. He's got a scar across his neck now. But to me, this was the most encouraging thing about it. He said, number one, nothing to do with his prior cancer at all. He never was concerned about that. He knew that was not it. And number two, he doesn't need to do anything now moving forward. Doesn't need to take any extra medication. He's still got three working parathyroids, which is, you know, obviously good. I guess you can function with only three out of the four and is already playing catch and, and starting to build himself back up. Now, he may not be pitching in a game quite as soon as we initially were led to believe he might, but he was very encouraged by this and even thinks that if this somehow had anything to do with the way that he pitched the last couple of years, that maybe there's still a lot left in the tank that we didn't realize that John Lester had. So that's what I wanted to get to with you. I don't want to just excuse John Lester's last two seasons for this parathyroid stuff. And by the way, there will be a quiz on all four of the parathyroids at the end of this podcast. But look, John Lester's performance has plummeted over the last two years. Like, you, you know, the John Lester we came to know with the Red Sox and in his peak years with the Cubs, that's not the John Lester who's been on display the last few years. But when this guy's talking about, you know, I'm finishing my warm-up in the bullpen and I'm coming out of that and I'm fatigued, like, you got to think that that's impacted his performance at least somewhat, right? So I, I know, you know, he's going into his age 37 season. His velocity did did sink big time last year. Like, there are definitely a lot of red flags that this guy is on the decline. But if you're dealing with that kind of a fatigue problem, I don't know. I don't think it's ridiculous to suggest that maybe it impacted how you performed in games. And maybe just maybe you do get a better John Lester in 2021. The guy had a 446 ERA in 2019, a 516 ERA in 2020. Maybe he's not that bad. Like maybe this guy's been fighting stuff we we had no idea about. And maybe we do get, you know, again, not peak Lester, but a better version than what we've had the last few years here. You like numbers, I know. I'm going to give you some numbers here. These are very simple, basic numbers that anybody can understand. This is not advanced analytics, but I thought it was pretty telling. And I, I looked this up today. From 2008 to 2016, John Lester averaged 6.4 innings per start. That's a pretty good number, especially in today's modern age for a starting pitcher. Okay. From 2017 to 20, the last four seasons, down from 6.4 to 5.6. That's a fairly decent drop. Now, again, he's getting older, maybe not as effective, and that's something. Well, last year alone in 2020, 5.1 innings. So from a peak of 6.4 throughout most of his career to 5.1 last year, I think there could be something to this. I'm not saying, like you said, he's not necessarily going back to being elite uh, Red Sox ace John Lester, but maybe he isn't a five-inning guy. Maybe he can be consistently a six-inning guy because of this. And there's certainly reason to be optimistic that that could be the case. And, And I can tell you just from watching him as he was talking about it today, he sounded very optimistic and hopeful that this is something that's going to make a difference. Yeah, I think that's a takeaway if you're a Nats fan here, that with Lester, there's some reason for hope and optimism that this guy bounces back at least to a certain extent this year now that he's gotten this uh, parathyroid issue resolved. And then we got one more happy bouquet, rainbow, lollipop, uh, Nationals rotation item to get into, and that is the Joe Ross Grapefruit League debut. Now, this is going back a few days at this point, Monday afternoon, 
but a 9-5 Nats win over the Mets. Joe Ross, one run, one and two-thirds innings, three strikeouts versus a single in the walk. The run came on a sack fly. The strikeouts were of three of the Mets' best batters, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, Dominic Smith. We've talked about Austin Voth and Eric Fetty and how they've done in their Grapefruit League outing so far. Joe Ross, the presumed favorite in the clubhouse for that fifth spot in the Nats rotation, looking pretty sharp. We obviously haven't seen him pitch in a true real game since 2019, but I think if you're Joe Ross, you feel very good about where you stand right now in that battle for that five spot in the rotation. Yeah, and he was really pleased to be out there facing another team for the first time in a year. And, you know, he's after opting out last year, he basically spent the summer and the offseason just playing catch with his brother Tyson, another big league pitcher uh, at home. He maybe was able to face a few friends uh, on some, you know, high school fields and things like that. But I mean, he had really not pitched competitively since last spring. So there was a little bit in his mind of a question of, okay, is this going to feel normal again? And he said it absolutely did. He was really pleased with it. And, Davey's not going to come out and say it, but I'm I'm reading between the lines here, and I, I'm feeling fairly confident at this point that barring something between now and the end of camp, like an injury or some dramatic swing in performance, I think it's pretty safe to say Joe Ross is going to be the fifth starter. Obviously, he is slotted into that spot. They're now pitching guys every fifth day. Voth and Fetty are getting stretched out, of course, to be starters in case they're needed, but it sure seems to me like this is Joe Ross's job, barring some kind of catastrophe the rest of the way. Yeah, Joe Ross especially seems to be one of those guys who, if you're going to use him, use him as a starter and not as a reliever. And 2019 really captured that. He was so bad as a reliever at the major league level that year. Actually, he ended up spending a good chunk of that season right pitching for AAA Fresno. But then late in the season, as a starter, does really well for the Nats down the stretch. It was, in fact, Joe Ross who was summoned to make that emergency start in the World Series when Max Scherzer got scratched. So, look, you know, it's hard to say with any kind of certainty what you're going to get from Ross. He was good for a few years. He's dealt with inconsistency and injury pretty much since then. But, you know, that Joe Ross of like 2015, 2016 was a pretty good starting pitcher. And like I said, late in that 2019 regular season, he did well. So I I do think there's a path by which Joe Ross, as your number five, actually pitches maybe like a number four or even a number three this season. I, I think there's reason to feel like this guy actually could be, you know, above and beyond the the normal number five starter in your rotation. I think we talked about this one of the previous episodes, but I, I really think it does fit for him, especially. He just needs to start every fifth day. He's been jerked around a lot. He's had, you know, some injuries, obviously the opt out, but that 2019 season, they kept, they would have him send him down to Fresno and go cross country have him like start one game and then all of a sudden they would need him in the bullpen. So he takes an overnight flight to meet the Nationals in in New York and have to pitch out of the bullpen. It was not a good situation for him. Get sent back down, called up. Maybe he would start now. No, maybe now he's going to pitch in relief. Let the guys pitch every fifth day as a starter. Let him feel that confidence. Let him build his arm up and get into that routine. Of all those guys, he he has the highest pedigree of them all. He is the guy that, like you said, when he first came up as a rookie several years ago, did show legitimate signs of of something that he could be a, a, an effective starting pitcher in the big league. So I don't know, you know, what long term it's what it's going to be like. Is he ever going to be more than this? But it's time to just let him pitch every fifth day and find out over the long haul what he can do. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Of course, the Nats obtained Joe Ross in a trade that also eventually brought over Trey Turner with the San Diego Padres and There's been a lot of Trey Turner and Juan Soto conversation over these last few weeks regarding potential contract extensions. Juan Soto, look, we are years away from him being a free agent. He's not going to be a free agent until the 2024-2025 offseason. With Trey Turner, there's a little more urgency. He's set to be a free agent after the 2022 season. And this has been something that's come up multiple times. Uh, Feels like it's come up a lot more since the Fernando Tatis news of a few weeks back, 14-year $340 million extension for him with the Padres. Mike Rizzo gets asked about this stuff again this past Monday in a Zoom presser. Says the following, quote, we've discussed internally with ownership about it. We're in the midst of making decisions on what a time frame would look like. We certainly have made and will make a long-term extension offer to both players sometime in the near future. End quote. Obviously, a Turner extension is easier to do than a Soto extension. Soto is the better player. Soto is the Scott Boris client. Soto is the younger player. You know, Turner's a guy who really has blossomed the last few years, but Turner's also older, and so you feel like there might be a little more of, of a, uh, an oomph from him and his camp to say, okay, why don't we go ahead and get the deal done? Do you think, Mark, especially with Trey, that we could get a deal done before the start of the season, or do you think this goes at least into the season? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, if there was a guy that you could see it happening, he would be the one, I would think, for all the reasons you outlined. I do think he likes it here. He's represented by CAA, the same agency that represents Ryan Zimmerman, and uh, have had other nationals over the years, and maybe you know a little more agreeable to agreeing to those kind of deals right now. But that said, he's not just taking a discount. This guy's numbers stack up with all the other shortstops out there, including Francisco Lindor who is in line to get a huge contract, whether it's from the Mets or someone else. Now, he's not the defensive player that Lindor is. And maybe he doesn't have the uh, the star power Q rating that Lindor is going to have in New York. But offensively, he is right there, if not better. And I think he deserves to be paid like one of the very best shortstops in the game. So I think it is possible, but I also know that he's not just going to take a deal just for the sake of of having that job security. But if someone was going to do it, I think he's the one. Soto is a different story. 
Yeah, and I want to get to more on Soto in a moment here. Whit Turner, so he's going into his age 28 season. You know, the studies have shown your prime is like 25 to 27, 28. It's not what people used to think it was, which is like, you know, 28 to 32, that kind of a thing. So, Trey, this is his shot, right, to get big money, you know, to do some kind of a long-term deal here with the Nats or maybe eventually somebody else. But I'm not sure if you're Trey Turner, you want to wait until after the 2022 season to do a contract. The way guys in their 30s now are being treated in free agency, it's very different than it's ever been. And so if you're Trey, you're already in your late 20s. It's like, man, you know, you're coming off this great stretch the last two years in terms of your offense. If I'm Trey, I would be kind of like strike while the iron's hot and try to get a deal done. And I think what's interesting with Turner is this. Because of especially this depressed free agent market this offseason and, you know, who knows what's going to happen moving forward. Like, George Springer got six years, $150 million. George Springer, a guy with that profile, say, two years ago, there's no way he gets 150 Like, he's well into the 200s. You know, he maybe gets like an Anthony Rendon-type contract in a more normal offseason, in more normal times. With Turner, my point is, I don't think you have to do, like, certainly not a $300 million deal. I don't think you get to $200 million. I think it's in, you know, a $100 million range. And who knows, maybe it's not even that high. In other words, I think the Turner money is going to be far more palatable. I do really feel like this can get done from both sides' perspectives. I like your thinking on that, and I think you make a good point about strike while the iron's hot. He's coming off a great year, and while he's certainly confident in his ability to do that again, maybe not to the same extent that you know Juan Soto over the next four years is going to put up monster numbers, whereas Trey Turner, he's probably going to be good, but there's a chance he doesn't lead all shortstops in OPS again this year. So maybe that is some motivation to do it. Like you said, maybe now at age 27, a little more reason. And we don't really know what the market's going to look like a year from now. With the new CBA, we don't know what kind of contract structure there's going to be, what free agency, arbitration, all these things are going to look like. So I could see there being a little more motivation on his side to get this done now as opposed to waiting to see what's going to happen later. On Soto, I have a very hard time seeing why he would agree to a deal now. I know we're going to get into this, but I don't even know there's a number out there the Nationals can put right now in front of Juan Soto and get him to say yes. Yeah, there may not be. I mean, we know who his agent is. We know what his agent doesn't like to do, which is in-season extensions, pre-free agency extensions. Although, of course, the irony to that is Steven Strasburg did it in 2016. And I'll never forget the look on Scott Boris's face at that Strasburg presser that year announcing the extension. Boris had a look on his face like, you know, he had just swallowed kryptonite or something. I mean, he looked like, I can't believe I just allowed one of my clients to do this. It was hysterical reading Boris's face at that press conference. I guess the the thing would be this. Look, if Soto doesn't want to do it, then there's no amount of money, to your point, that's going to make him do it. I think the key, though, is is this, and I I felt like Rizzo kind of alluded to this in his comments to you guys on Monday. You got to come strong and you got to come correct. Like if you're really serious about locking up Soto now, buying out the arbitration years, buying out a bunch of free agent years, you can't do one of these willy-nilly, you know, we'll give you $150 million and then in 2090, you'll get the other $150 million. Like you got to go 300 plus million strong. You can't do deferred money and you got to come correct and you got to really try to overwhelm them. Because like you said, that's the only chance you got at doing a Tatis-like extension. And, and even then, it may not be enough to get a deal done. I agree with you that there can't be any funny money involved here. It's got to be a real number, a real deal for a lot of years and a whole lot of money. 
And then you just hope. Now, you know, there's only so much they can do. They can make the offer. And then, you know, you can't blame the Nationals at that point. But let me talk through this. And the night that Tatis signed his deal, I was texting with, with someone who is pretty in tune with these things. And I said, I, I asked this person, do you think if the Nationals made Soto the exact same offer tonight, would he take it? And he said, absolutely not. Okay. That's what it was. 14 for 340. And here's why. Soto is 22 years old. 14-year deal takes him to age 36. You're not getting a good deal at age 36. So this is kind of your one and only deal. And if you think about what Bryce Harper did, he's signed till 39. And a lot of these big-time free agents and Boris clients are making sure they're now locked up deep into their 30s because this is going to be their only shot at it. So there's that. But even more than that, it's this. You have four years left of arbitration. Arbitration always, always, always helps the player. There's hardly any example of it not increasing a player's salary by a lot. The system is designed to help players. So Soto's in his, uh, what, first of four years of arbitration, and that number is only going to keep getting higher and higher each year to the point that now when he gets to his walk year, He's probably already making 25 or even 30 million a year through arbitration. And now that's the baseline for your next contract. What Tatis did was establish the baseline now, long before he ever gets to that point. The market's always going to keep going up. So four years from now, Juan Soto or the, the, the price per year of an elite superstar player is only going to keep getting higher and it's going to be higher than it is right now. So if you're Soto, yeah, there's some insurance to protect yourself in case you get hurt. You're never the same player again, sure. And it's awfully tempting to do that, and, and it's awfully hard to turn down those kind of numbers. But if you believe in yourself, as we know this guy does, and you have a, a, an agent who works for you who, say what you want about Scott Boris, but he knows what he's doing. He's one of the brilliant minds in baseball, and more often than not, he does well for his players. I just don't see, as crazy as it sounds, I don't see the advantage from Soto's standpoint of doing a deal now. I think he plays the system and ends up with a much bigger number down the road. Doesn't mean it can't still be with the Nationals, but I just think he would be leaving a lot of money on the table to do it right now. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. I, I would be very surprised if Soto agreed to this. I do think very much, though, the Nats should try to do this because we are seeing players, really good players, sign these big money extensions early in their careers. Like, like it's not just Tatis, right? Ronald Acuna did it. And Acuna did it with the Braves for $100 million, which seems like a crime. That was a steal for the Braves. And a lot of people around baseball were actually upset by it because yeah. they thought Acuna sold himself way short. And Ozzie Albies did the same thing, too. I don't know what's going on with the Braves, but I mean, that, that's like they should be prosecuted for those two extensions. That's unbelievable <laughs> that they did that. But other guys have done it, too. Mike Trout did it years ago with the Angels. Andrew McCutcheon did it a while back with the Pirates. So it may not make financial sense, like if you want to maximize every nickel, but there is something to, hey, I'm in my early 20s and you're giving me $300 plus million guaranteed. Yeah, man, where do I sign? So going to be fascinating to see. I don't know about you. I would take the deal. Uh, I would too. Yes. NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We are both open to that kind of money. So people are, are aware of that. All right. Since uh, we last uh, chatted on the Nats Chat Podcast, we've also had some developments regarding fans at Nationals Park for opening night. Now, nothing is for sure for sure at this point, but a few things you want to be aware of. 
So when we last left this topic, it was kind of left up in the air. Will fans be allowed at Nationals Park this season for opening night, April 1st? D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser this past Monday said she was looking at lifting some virus-related restrictions on businesses, possibly including attendance at professional sports games in mid-March. Our expectation is that we'll have some loosening now and even more um, later. So that seemed like, all right, probably going to get what we want here, you know, if you're in the camp of wanting to be able to go to games at Nats Park. There also is this, and this doesn't necessarily directly impact the Nats, but it's hard to ignore. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan on Tuesday saying that we're opening things up in Maryland, eased eased a bunch of the COVID-19-induced restrictions, and among them is 50% capacity at sporting events, i.e. at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. They're going to be allowed to have up to 50% capacity. Now, there is a joke of these days at Camden Yards, 50% capacity, you know, it's like maybe two dozen people. But uh, besides that, I'm glad you said that, not me. The fact that Maryland will allow for 50% capacity at Camden Yards, Bowser spoke as she spoke on Monday. You know, I'm not Anthony Fauci, but it seems to me, Mark, that there's a pretty decent chance here we're going to have some fans in Nats Park on opening night. I would say the signs are looking more encouraging by the day, yes. And I was curious all along to see, uh, as as we said on the, on the last podcast, that DC's kind of been at the far end of the spectrum. And let's see what some of those other cities that have been closer to DC in terms of restrictions all for the last year. Let's see what they do. Well, Chicago is now starting to open up. California is opening up. I mean, look, Muriel Bowser is not going to make her decision based on what the governor of Texas is doing. She's going to do it based on what's happening here locally and in other maybe comparable cities that have taken a similar approach to all this. So there seems to be you know, a growing optimism for something. I don't think it's going to be 50%. I don't think, certainly don't think it's going to be 100%, but I know a lot of people really do believe that it can be a, you know, a decent number of fans there on opening day. I want to share a quote from Max Scherzer, though. I thought this was important, and I think more people out there need to take this kind of thing to heart. So he was asked about the fact that the Rangers just announced that they're going to have 100% capacity on opening day and uh, what his thoughts were on that and if he is optimistic that there will be at least some fans at Nats Park on opening day. And Max said, I quote, I really like to defer to the experts on this and listen to what Dr. Fauci has to say. As much as I think I know stuff, I think he knows a little bit more. Good for Max for saying that. It's not easy for Max Scherzer to admit that anybody knows more than he does on any subject, okay? This is a guy, this is an alpha male who believes that he knows better than anybody on anything, and he will acknowledge that when it comes to this particular subject, Dr. Fauci knows a little bit more than Max Scherzer. And I think it's important that we all think we know how this should go. We all know what we want to have happen. Ultimately, these are decisions that need to be made by the actual experts in this field. And I do believe, based on what we've seen, that they will say, yes, there is a way to do this and to gradually increase it as the season plays out. Yeah, totally. I know one of the ideas that's been thrown out there is that July 4th maybe can be like a symbolic reopening and you really can start to ramp up crowds at that point. And that would be kind of a nice way, you know, the holiday, baseball, summertime, people are outdoors. And, you know, maybe that can be something that really ignites uh, fans going back to sporting events. You know, obviously the numbers have got to trend Uh, in the right direction, as they have been and hopefully will continue to be. I I think one thing that's good, too, is this area, the D.C. area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, throughout the pandemic, 
thank God, our numbers have been pretty good relative to the rest of the country. Like, I think, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back here, but I think we as an area have done a pretty good job, all things considered. And I think uh, we should be trusted to behave responsibly and, you know, handle ourselves the way you need to handle things here. So, you know, I think that should enter into the equation, too. It's not like you've had a bunch of reckless behavior in this area throughout this thing. If I know Nats fans, and I'm pretty sure I do, I know I know enough of them that I've gotten to know over the years. Number one, they are excited to come back to the ballpark. Number two, they're going to take it seriously and do what they need to do and not do anything irresponsible that maybe you, you see in some other places. You know, Once it opens, they want to keep it going in that direction. They don't want to ever have to get to a point that they're now reducing fan uh, allowance in the stadium. So I, I trust Nats fans. I trust the people of this area, as we've seen over the last year, to be smart and responsible about this. So you mentioned the last year, uh, depending on when people are listening to this, we are at the one-year mark at this point in terms of COVID-19 being labeled a pandemic by the World Health Organization, the one-year mark of basically, in this country anyway, COVID-19 really, truly becoming a thing. It really was March 11th, right around there, that uh, you had the announcement from the WHO that this is a pandemic. You had sports really starting to shut down. Of course, a thing that ignited the shutdowns for sports in this country, truly. That was the Rudy Gobert scenario in the NBA. And, you know, from that point, like every other domino fell. And, it, and I mean, it's, it's incredible looking back on it, right? The shutdown of the college basketball season, no NCAA tournament, you know, baseball, hockey, everything else following suit. Now, as this is happening a year ago at this time, you're covering national spring training down at West Palm Beach. What was that like as this thing is developing and spring training and sports as a whole are being shut down because of the pandemic? Yeah, It's funny to think back now because it, it both feels like such a long time ago and also doesn't feel that long ago. And the thing that struck me today as I was kind of reliving it all in my head was how quickly it changed. So I'm going to start at the beginning of the week on Monday, which I think was the 9th of March. And this was the day that MLB announced they were going to start closing clubhouses to media. And we were only going to be allowed to interview players outdoors at a distance from six feet. And my reaction and all my colleagues' reaction was, what, this is the craziest thing we ever heard of. You're telling me it's not safe to be in the clubhouse? Come on. There's no danger. What? This isn't a problem. This is a huge overreaction to whatever might be going on here. And we were not happy about it. And then literally two days later, Wednesday night, I remember sitting in the hotel room. I think I was watching TV. And the two major developments that happened were Tom Hanks announcing that he had tested positive. And at this point, when, when you find out somebody's tested positive, we don't really know what that means. We think this is the ultimate in life-threatening conditions at this point. So that was number one. And then Rudy Gobert. And that was, I remember like almost being terrified and, and realizing, oh my God, this thing is for real. And they got to shut down everything right now. They can't wait any longer. This needs to happen right now. And so it was the, the next day, the 12th, that the Nationals were playing the Yankees. It was a sellout crowd at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches. There was a little uneasiness, I think, among everyone. of like, is this okay? This many people are here. Nobody's wearing masks at this point. I think the first known case in West Palm Beach had just happened from a guy who took a flight from New York, knowing that he may have had it, but hadn't had it confirmed. And it wasn't until he landed that he, he turned on his phone and got the message that he had tested positive and everybody like blew their stack over this. And now did he just infect the entire West Palm Beach area? So th- there was a lot of just kind of shocking concern and just how quickly it all went. MLB announced that was it. That would be the last day of spring training. I remember 
checking out of the hotel the next day and saying to the front desk clerk, everybody's checking out of the hotel and we're thinking this is going to be awful for their business. And I said, hey, don't worry. It'll be a couple of weeks and I'll be back. I promise we're all going to come back. We're going to come back and stay here uh, for the remainder of spring training. I haven't been in a hotel since. And it, it's so crazy to think about how in that moment we didn't really grasp what this was going to do to our lives and for how long it was going to impact all our lives. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, we're not trying to depress everyone with this, but it is amazing how badly this ended up going. And, you know, I, I, there's an element of luck here, too, because the virus ended up being what it was, i.e. super contagious, i.e., you know, there were some missteps initially where it's like, well, don't wear your masks because we want to save the masks for the hospitals because they're going to be overrun. And then it turns out, well, no, actually, you should wear a mask. And it took a while to kind of reverse that messaging. And so it's just like a, a lot of things over the course of this thing that could have gone one way ended up going the way that made things worse, not better. And so, like, I, I think there's an element of that here. And, and you know, it's, it's been such a weird thing, too, because, like, there's a segment of the population that's affected big time by COVID-19. And then, of course, there's a segment of the population that – Many people don't even know they ever have it. You know, it's like, have we ever had something like that where it's deadly for some people and just like, you know, like a fly on your shoulder for other people? It's just it's very odd in that regard. But to tie it to the Nats, did we ever find out what the deal was with the Juan Soto thing when the season started where he ends up missing the first seven games in a 60 game season? Understand missing the first seven games in a 60 game year. That's like missing the first 19 games in a normal 162 game season. You know, there was all this reporting that was done that he had all these negative tests and still wasn't allowed to play. I know at one point Soto did a press conference on his own and in English saying that he believed he never had COVID-19. Do we know what the truth was? Did he have it? Did he not have it? What was the deal with all the negative tests? How do we look back on that? I mean, I don't know that we can ever say with 100% certainty that he didn't have it. But here's what we do know. He tested positive once the first time. He didn't test positive again after that. He never displayed any symptoms of it, never felt like anything was wrong with him. Nobody else on the team, as a result of that, got it. There were a few guys who, when they arrived in D.C. on their intake testing, they had a positive test, and I think one or two of them actually had it, and they had to miss a little bit of time of camp. But nobody else, it's not like this Soto's positive test created any kind of chain reaction within the clubhouse the way that we saw with the Cardinals and the Marlins, and we've seen some other teams in other sports. So. I know he believes it was a false positive. I'm pretty sure the Nationals believe it was a false positive. But I don't know there's any way to ever, you know, 100% for sure know that was the case. But this also ties in with what we were talking about earlier about the D.C. regulations. It was the D.C. government that had said, you test positive, you are not allowed back for, it was 10 days. It was seven games that he missed, but it was 10 days. He wasn't even allowed on the premises. And the Nationals tried to work with them to change some of those regulations and say, hey, look, if you test negative a couple times in a row, even Major League Baseball's protocols would have allowed him to come back. And if he was on a different team, he could have come back. And it was because of D.C.'s regulations that he was not allowed to come back. And that led to a little bit of dissension between the team and the city, some things that are still lingering today that may still be ongoing in the relationship between the two. So keep that in mind now as we're waiting to find out what the D.C. government is going to allow as far as fans are concerned. But I mean, by all accounts, common sense says that he never actually had it, that it was a false positive. The timing was horribly unfortunate. You know, who knows what impact it would have had on the national season, but I know it frustrated him quite a bit. And thankfully, he came back and didn't miss a beat because he had a remarkable, shortened, but still remarkable season. 
you wonder if he plays those first seven games and pads his numbers even more, like does his MVP case really shoot up? I mean, it was going to be hard for him to get it. I I think MVP should have nothing to do with how your team does, but the fact is that does impact some people's voting, so the fact that the Nats weren't good didn't help him. But he had such a great year. You tack on seven more games to that, I think that could have been really interesting come MVP voting time. Yeah, it would have helped his cause. I mean, Freddie Freeman had a remarkably good season for a great team. And those are usually the combination of things that that lead to it. But I can tell you as a occasional MVP voter myself, and having seen the way that this has adjusted over the years, voters are a lot more willing now to vote for guys on teams who don't win than they used to be. That used to be a prerequisite. You had to play for a playoff team. That's not the case anymore. Uh, and it would have been fascinating to see what the the ultimate decision was on that because the numbers were unmistakably good for him. And we should also point out Freddie Freeman had COVID, like actually had it, didn't miss any time at the, at the start of the season, but he actually had it pretty bad and was worried that he was going to have some lingering effects from it, and he didn't. Yeah, I was going to make mention of that. That's part of what has been so hard to kind of wrap your head around with this thing. A guy like Freddie Freeman, an elite-level athlete, was bedridden. He talked about this, how COVID-19, like, ravaged him. And you're like, really, you? Like, you're not some 90-year-old, you know, with all these pre-existing conditions. You're Freddie Freeman, and you were bedridden by this? So it's been something else, trying to grapple with this and wrestle with this. But does seem like we're coming out of it. We hope all of you listening are healthy. And uh, if you have been impacted by this, we hope that you're on the mend and, uh, and certainly doing better. All right, man, uh, that will do it for us for this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Keep the feedback coming at Nats underscore chat on Twitter. And don't forget, you can always reach us via email, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. For Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com, I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.